So kind of building on what our, our brother Joel Kuhlman, our elder, praying for us, shared today. <laughs> Surrender is tough for everybody, not just those Minnesota team challenge. And that's the thing, right? It's the thing about the gospel is to surrender your life to Christ and trust Him with your life rather than us being in control. But that's hard, and that's something we have to let go of daily. Trust that He has a better life for us in trusting Him than what we have and what we can make for ourselves. And I think we're going to see that today in the passage we're going to look at. You might want to open up your Bibles and just put your finger into 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But let me ask you this question. How many of you think that we have too many lawsuits in America? Anybody? Here's some statistics just from, from 2015, all right? So there's an average every year of, of 15 million lawsuits or torts in civil court every year. People suing other people, all right? The average tort is about for, you know, trying to get about 60,000 out of, out of the person you're prosecuting. The average take home is 50,000. And if it's a medical malpractice, excuse me, and 55% of the time you win if you're, if you're the plaintiff, okay? Now if you go into a medical lawsuit, malpractice, it's only 25%, but the, the, uh, the take home is more, okay? That's why malpractice insurance is so crazy high and maybe that's why our, our medical, uh, our medical system is so broken. Because people have to pay for those kind of abuses. And by the way, 80% of all lawyers live in the U.S. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't that tell you that perhaps we have an abuse of a system? Here are some of the cases that are out there. In New York, are you familiar with a, a product called the Clapper? Clap on, clap on the Clapper, right? Well, somebody in New York was suing the clapper because they had to clap too hard and were damaging their hands to try and turn on their appliances. Okay? In Florida, in Florida, and, and I say this to the shame of pastors, a pastor and his wife tried to sue a dog, excuse me, a, a guide dog company because as they were walking through the mall, a blind man came with his guide dog and the dog actually accidentally stepped on her foot. And so they wanted to sue that guide dog company for $160,000, but apparently they withdrew the the, uh, the lawsuit because of just sheer public outcry and shame. So they withdrew that. And then in, in Michigan, and I'm, I'm not endorsing Budweiser beer, but just hear me out here, okay? A man sued Budweiser because of a commercial where when a person opened a can of beer a beautiful woman appeared. And so he sued them for false advertising because when he opened his beer, a beautiful woman did not appear before him. I'm thinking if you can't figure that out, you have no business drinking beer, first of all. And then and then the infamous McDonald's case in 1992 in New Mexico where a woman purchased hot coffee, drove away, and spilled it on her lap and sued McDonald's because they didn't warn her it was hot. Well, I don't know what to say. This is an abuse of the legal system. It keeps them clogged up, backed up. And, you know, it's affected businesses and organizations. They're afraid to do anything, anything good even, 
Insurance companies are increasingly telling their clients, you can't do this lest you get sued. And people are taking people to court, people they know, their loved ones, in order to make a quick buck or to punish someone, someone else. But what happens? What happens when that abuse invades the church of Jesus Christ? And we forget that we are people who are not living for the here and now, but living for eternity in the things that matter. That's what we're going to be looking at today in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's word. So Lord Jesus, this is your church. Your Holy Spirit is alive and well in us, and so I pray that you will open the eyes of our heart to help us to see what you have in your word. And Lord, if if we find ourselves out of sorts of what your word says, what your Holy Spirit is prompting us to do, would you give us grace to, to repent and change? But most of all, Lord, I pray that you would make us people of eternity, who see what matters, who see that what matters is whether people know you and have a relationship with you. Are they reconciled to you? Do they have an eternal destiny? Lord, I pray that we would value that, and I pray that you would help us to see that in your word today. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Okay, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, just verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? How's that for an opening statement? It's kind of like that rhetorical question your parent asks you, right? So if your friends were all going and jumping off a cliff because it was cool, would that make it right? Would that be okay for you to do that? And as a kid, you know the answer is no, right? You know it's no. But this is what is going on in the church. And don't you hear just the the sense of the tone, the chastisement, the consternation. This is what's happening. People in the church are bringing their disputes between each other, not to the church, but to ungodly, unbelieving uh, magistrates in the city of Corinth to settle their disputes. How did we get here? Just back it up a little bit to chapter 5. Paul was talking about church discipline. And he says in verses 12 and 13, what business, of, business of, me, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. See, just as the church is called to render judgment inside the church with ongoing, unrepentant sin, but not outside the church, so the church is also called not to seek judgment outside the church for matters that need to be resolved inside the church. But again, it was happening, and Paul is going to rebuke them for their short seeking a short-sighted judgment. You'll see what I mean here. Pick it up at verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels 
how much more the things of this life. Now we don't know exactly, the scripture is not exactly clear about what the dispute was that was taking place here. It doesn't tell us about the specific issues, but Paul calls them, in verse 2, trivial issues. In verse 3, things of this life. Most likely it was about stuff, right? About money, about maybe a business arrangement going south, about property. And no doubt somebody's rights were violated, somebody crossed the line. But we're not talking about murder or violent crime or major theft or an act of treason here. We're talking about the things of this life. Hey, you're impinging on my stuff. Again, back to verse 1. It says, dare you take it before the ungodly for judgment? The reason for this prohibition is partly theological, but there's plenty of things, uh, historically and cultural reasons, not to go to civil court as well. Roman philosopher and historian Cicero complained that favor and great resources and money with which to offer bribes hindrance, hindered justice in the provinces east of Rome. Basically, those with resources were influencing the decisions of the court. And here was the truth also, that the courts were in the hands of the upper class. And they were using the courts to kind of keep the distinguishment amongst, you know, who were the upper class and who were the lower class and, and judgment took place that way. There was no equal protection under the law. And here was the other thing. It was just ugly. It was just ugly. You see, if you were you had an advocate or a lawyer, if you will, they would show no restraint, no holds barred. Slander and character assassination were part of it. Reputations were dragged through the mud. The residue of hate, bitterness, and jealousy is left. It's tough to be reconciled after these vicious verbal attacks have taken place. Words really do have the power to wound the soul. But Paul's main theological point was this is that this unbelieving judge or judges, they lack the eternal perspective that the believer ought to have. Back to verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people, the Lord's saints, literally, will judge the world? Not contradicting what he said earlier in chapter 5, that God will judge those outside. But when Jesus returns, on the day of the Lord, Jesus will take his people and appoint them as judges, give them the job, the responsibility to judge the world under his authority. And again in verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? Again, Paul highlights the perspective that history is going somewhere. That is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an eschatological kingdom that is coming. Eschatology means study of end times, and that should be the focus. That should be the end goal of every believer. And that should be what should be kept in mind when we talk about things of this world. This is mentioned four times earlier before we get to this in chapter 
1 and 7, 1 and 8, 3 and 13, 5 and 5. We should be eschatological people. And our future is the focus. It is the perspective when we deal with these trivial things. They're not as important as we think. They're not going to last. And so we should have a different perspective. So Paul says in verse 2, if you're going to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And again in verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things of this life? Look, if you know who you are, if you know what your future is, and you know the value of what that future holds about these earthly, trivial things, then you will have the wherewithal to judge them rightly. That's what Paul is trying to get at here. And by the way, by the way, just coming out of chapter 5, it was most likely we were dealing with an issue of greed that chapter 5, verse 11 talks about, or swindling. Both sins that could have come under uh, church discipline for the end of the But here's the thing. When the things of this life get in the way of how we love one another, we treat one another, and we put that above our concern for one another, when the things of this life get in the way of pursuing the kingdom of God, then we are out of line with our eternal destiny. We're out of line with our eternal Lord. That's what Paul's trying to get to. And Paul continues to hold their feet to the fire for the short-sighted judgment in verse 4. He says, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to your shame, to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among the wise, among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another brother to court. And this in front of unbelievers. You know, shame is kind of a, a dirty word these days. We use it to note that people are, are trying to embarrass you or manipulate you or you know, use guilt to get you to do something or to put you in a bad light. And I'm not saying that isn't abused. It happens all the time on the internet. It's sad. But here in this passage, Paul is not afraid to call shame on the Corinthians. Number one, for not doing what they ought to do. That is bringing this issue before the church and for doing what they ought not do. That is bringing a matter between two brothers in Christ who ought to love each other, who ought to bear with one another, who ought to forgive one another, but bringing it to a place to air their dirty laundry before unbelievers. They'll bludgeon each other's public reputation, their character, and not only that, it will grieve the heart of the Heavenly Father. I'll tell you what, Something that would grieve me about my children is that one day they would end up in court with each other. That would be a sad outcome for me as a parent. But most of all, it gives the gospel a black eye. Yes, perhaps someone will win in court, but there's a time when winning is losing. Verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you 
means that you have completely, excuse me, means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Yes, you may want what is fair. You might be trying to protect your rights. You don't want to give in to somebody who you think is abusing you or taking advantage of you. But at what cost? At what cost? And in bringing this matter into the public court for unbelievers, the loss has already taken place. For the gospel, for Christ's reputation, for the kingdom of God, and a watching world is asking, what real difference does Jesus make in the heart of the believer? Yeah, they talk a good game, but when push comes to shove, and self-interest is at heart, they do it like everyone else. They look out for themselves, the expense of others, the hypocrites. It's all talk. And here's the question that Paul's asking is asking us. Do we value the kingdom of God? Do we value the kingdom of God to the point where we're willing to take a loss? To the point where we're willing to be wronged for it? To the point where we're willing to give up our rights and be like our Lord Jesus for His sake and for His kingdom? And let the world see Jesus. Let them see Christ in us. A Savior that gave up His own life. A Savior who willingly went to die for us. He was innocent. Are we willing to value his kingdom? That's why Paul goes on and says, Why not rather be wrong? Why not be cheated? That's hard. That's surrender, right? That's hard. It's the same heart where Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. If someone asks you one mile, go two. If someone sues you for your shirt, you give them your token back. Because we value the kingdom. We value that more than our own interests. Now I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying it's Jesus having to work in you. We're going to talk about that here in a second. And I know some of you have been hurt by other Christians. Have been wronged by other Christians. Have been at the, the butt end of Christians acting unethical. It's happened in my own life. And it's hard and it's sad. But I want to, I want to encourage you. Stay out of court. Stay out of and in doing so, we will not drag Jesus' name in the mud. In doing so, if it's in the church especially, you'll give the church a chance to intervene in the redemptive way. In staying out of court, you won't have to suffer through the, the financial drain of it. You won't have to suffer through the stress and the bitterness and the anger and the just the garbage that goes in civil court. And it does. It never goes like the television shows. It's always yucky. 
And let me say that if another brother or sister has wronged you, and even all those things, they're unrepentant, it seems like there's no recourse, it's a, we have a Father in Heaven who knows how to discipline those children. He knows how to take care of those things. We need not worry about justice. God says himself, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We don't have to be the ones to go out and try and exact justice. He says, I'm very capable of that. Thank you very much. I am your Heavenly Father. I am God. And I will repay. It may not be in our time, but he will take care of it. And we need to, by faith, surrender those things, take them off our hook to bring justice and put them on God's hook. And know that he will take care of it. And I know that's a whole sermon for a whole other time. But it's true. God will heal you. Unfortunately, this act of faith wasn't happening in Corinth. And Paul continues to rebuke them for behavior not becoming to their identity. Pick it up at verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this with your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Apparently, somebody had taken someone else to court to use it to, to cheat and defraud, and maybe technically it was legal, but it was still wrong. It was taking the aim to taking advantage of someone else. Commandment number five. Anyone know what it is? The Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal. Right? Maybe it's not number one on the list, but it's the number one as far as dealing with Man's relationship with man. That's one the one that comes first. And even more so, what Paul was saying was that their behavior of the of the of the Corinthians was more like the ungodly, like those who are heading towards judgment and eternal destruction than those who are destined for salvation. He was saying, Don't be deceived. Those who behave in this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And as Paul puts out a list, he starts with sexual sin, harkening back to what we were looking at in chapter 5. A man who was having sexual affair with his, his stepmother, if you will. It includes sexual immorality. Idolaters, maybe you think how does idolatry fit into this? Realize that in Corinth there were pagan shrines where prostitution was part of the worship. So that was part of it. Adulterers, men who were having sex with men. Actually, there are two words here. Those who are feminine, assuming the, the female role. Those who are men having sex with men, the masculine role. These will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next week, we're going to 
as we finish this chapter, we're going to start entering into a part of this letter that talks about holy sexuality. And that's an important thing for us to know. So I hope you're going to be here for that. But it was not in line with who they were in Christ. And he continues on in this list talking about items that were more in line with today's passage. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul states at the end of this, right? And that is what some of you were. That is what you used to be. But not anymore. That shouldn't be true of you. Because, as he continues on, that means your sin has been forgiven and cleansed. You were sanctified if you're in Christ. That means you now have holy standing and been set apart for His use. And you were justified. That means you now have right legal standing before a holy God. And all this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because of what He accomplished in His life and His death and His resurrection as you put your hope in Him and by the Holy Spirit. That is God's transforming power. You see, this passage is not so much about information but transformation. Have you surrendered to Jesus? Allowed Him to come into your life? And let Him have His way through the face of His Holy Spirit. That you might be transformed. Transformed by Him. Within this passage here, this little section, there's a warning. There's a warning against sins, deceit, and destruction. A few weeks ago, I referencing back to Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death. Why do we want to continue in those things that we're ashamed of? Those things result in death. He said in Romans 6.21. Don't continue in that way. That's the destructive way that God has saved you from. There's a warning there. Here's a rebuke. You're acting contrary to who you are. And bringing these litigious complaints to the secular judge, the acting completely different than who you are. But there's also a reminder, right, at the end here, that this there's an identity based on the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, what He has done, and the power of His Holy Spirit to redeem. And to set us free from sin, to keep living that way, rather than to keep, just to be free to sin, to do our own thing. When He came to set us free from that sin. So again, it's a call to act in integrity with who you are in Christ if we have put our faith in Him. So at the end here, now this is, it's not an easy passage, right? Let me say this. This passage is not to be used to protect or ignore criminal behavior. If there are things like child abuse, murder, theft, 
Even in the church, those things are to be reported. Number two, this passage does not teach that we should never be in court. Paul himself had many a day in court defending his ministry and the gospel, right? Not in sin in doing that. Number three, the court may be the place where we need to fight for what is right and justice in our land. But, but, it ought not be used as a place for personal gain or to settle the score with anyone or to inflict punishment on our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is totally inappropriate. That is what the church is for, what the body of Christ is for. And we need to do that with an eternal perspective. Remember, the stuff that we're squabbling over is it doesn't last. It's trivial. It's going away. And we need to behave like those who Jesus has indeed washed and sanctified and justified. We need to be transformed by what he's done in the Holy Spirit. Be living like who we say we are. That's the challenge of this passage today. Let me pray for us and then have the worship team And so, Lord, this is a, a challenging passage. Indeed, you had to come to save us because we could not save ourselves. But, Lord, I know when we try and exact our own justice, when we try and make our brother or sister pay for the offense they have against us, we end up perverting your justice. Would you give us grace to entrust these things to the community of grace? And if that doesn't work, Lord, that you would even give us grace to be wronged for your kingdom. You know that you work beyond the justice that we can see. And that, Father, you will bring true justice at the end, whether you bring it through your hand of discipline, or you bring it to your hand of judgment. So we can trust you, because you said that you did. So give us grace if we have an offense against somebody. So we've gone through the proper channels. So to take them off our hook, where we want to inflict justice or retribution, put it on your hook and trust you. We're grateful for this word. We're grateful for your salvation, the transformation that's to take place in us. So would you give us grace indeed to surrender to you? And Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, would you do in us what we cannot do ourselves? It's in your name I pray.